Three important revolutions shaped the course of history. The cognitive revolution kickstarted history about 70,000 years ago. The agricultural revolution sped it up about 12,000 years ago. The scientific revolution, which got underway only 500 years ago, may well end history and start something completely different. This book tells the story of how these three revolutions have affected humans and their fellow organisms. Nat, we've been looking forward to this episode for a while. We have. This has been on the books actually since the Nat Chat days. Yeah. Yep. Because <laughs> after after you and I did Anti Fragile, our good friend Adil, who joined us for the crypto episode, episode eight, I want to say, made you think. You guys can find it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Adil had reached out and suggested that he and I do an episode on Sapiens for Nat Chat as well. That never happened. But today, we are doing an episode on Sapiens, and we're joined once again by Mr. Adil Majid. Woo! Hello. <laughs> we should put like, some clapping in there. Yeah, we right. <laughs> like, edited some clapping noises. <laughs> we still need our soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> hey, when our affiliate revenue gets up to like $2,000 or something. We'll exactly, that. yeah. That'll be our reward. We need Patreon reward tiers or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. When <laughs> we, we get, get the soundboard, a thousand a month, we get the soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we've been so we've been talking about this episode for a while. I think we've all read this book before, right? I don't think this is our first time yeah. reading this book. But this book really shaped. Uh, I can at least speak for myself. It's shaped the way I view like narratives, human narratives, how we how humans are organized. I mean, kind of almost affected my thinking at a similar way as anti fragile. Like it's just another lens through which you know you can look at reality. Yeah, and. One of the things I was going to say about that that I thought was funny is the first time I read it, I thought it was really like mind-blowing, amazing, like mm. super cool, interesting. But now rereading it, I still think it's a wonderful book. Yeah. But since we've done Darwin's Dangerous Idea yeah. and Go to Lecture Bach and Finite Infinite Games and a few other books, I actually see a lot of those same threads in this one. Oh, yeah. So I, I liked seeing all of those parallels in it now. And it made it a little less like mind-blowing-y this time, but yeah. also... I think I appreciated some of the generalizability of the ideas, if that makes sense. I think this was the most accessible version of a lot yes. of those ideas too, right? This is like, this is going to sound like a negative thing, but I really do like this book, is closer to a popcorn book than like Go to Usher Bach or like Finite Infinite Games or anything like that. Much more readable. It's a book that I feel like people who want to think deeply about the idea can get a lot out of, but also if you don't want to think deeply, it can still be a, a good book. But you probably aren't listening to this podcast if you don't want to think too deeply. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, what about you, Adil? What was your sort of first thought when reading this book and then rereading it? Completely changed how I see human behavior in a number of ways. Part of it, like, clarified things that I found frustrating about people. And there are certain things that I just find hilarious now. You know, for example, like, one that I always go back to is... Once you think of humans as animals, I find airplanes just incredible. You get like a bunch of people, you put them in rows, you stick them in a tube, you make them follow some rules. Like as a way in which like animals work together, it is kind of incredible. And it just cracks me up every single time I go on. And you're just at the mercy of one other animal. Like imagine giraffes, you know, if they like boarded a vessel where their lives were at risk, right? But in a number of other ways too, like the way it has shaped how I see religion, the way it's how I see politics, how people fighting with each other just... Even things within my own family, it has completely, uh, at least given me a new frame of reference to take a look at it. Yeah. yeah. I think that the central theme in it of myths, myths and like shared ideologies kind of being the backbone of pretty much everything in our lives is just like a big zero to one way of changing your thinking. Whereas yeah. if you get nothing else out of the book, getting that idea 
that kind of these shared mythologies underlie pretty much everything of value to us in our world today and that we find meaningful. That's just such an interesting lens to look at stuff through. And it's kind of similar to, and we, we keep talking about this book, we've never done it, we should at some point. It's like selfish gene memetics, right? Where it's like these ideas that transcend cultures and evolve and change with people, how important that can be. And actually, I mean, and Harari calls this out in the book too, uh, but postmodernism, right? And what we did the last episode with Discipline and Punish, where it's like there's a lot of power just in these shared ideas, especially in how it can end up regulating how a society and people function. Yeah. What I love about the shared mythology is that at any level, like at a macro level and a micro level, you see it applied. So Sapiens, Harari talks a lot about you know, political movements. Right? So you have people who believe you know, communism is the way and they'll die on the sword in order to defend communism, right? But all the way down to the micro level, like if you're having a relationship dispute, you know, when you want to resolve a dispute, it's about that shared idea. We're both investing in the relationship. Right. And so the mythology is like all the way from two people to millions of people scales really well. Yeah. He doesn't talk about it at the micro level, but I find that it applies even there. Yeah, I think it also just applies to like the narrative of people's lives that they tell themselves, right? It's like people will tell themselves like a story about themselves. Like they might have conceived of that story or someone might have told them that when they were like 10 years old. But then they'll go through their entire life thinking that. And I guess an example is like, you know, someone who maybe grows up being told at some point, like, you're quiet, right? They might not, maybe there's some genetic predisposition to being quiet, but it's also could be this self-reinforcing story that like, oh, everybody says I'm quiet, so I'm probably quiet. And then you take actions that would be of a quiet person, and then those actions reinforce what you thought about your story, right? So it's like, but it starts with a story that you're kind of telling yourself. So yeah, I've always, I think you're right. It scales like up and down really nicely of different levels of humans. Yeah. Well, I think what makes the most sense for us to do now is actually just start off at the beginning of the book because we don't get into a lot of that until later. And the way he introduces some of these concepts and gets the book started off is actually by pointing out really just kind of how meaningless we are as a species <laughs> uh, for, for most of history anyway. And the first chapter is literally titled An Animal of No Significance, right? Which is that right in the beginning, right? So we're talking around 2 million years ago when something close to sapiens started to come onto the map. We were really just another animal. There was not that much especially important about us. And we were just kind of like hanging out, eating stuff, making babies, like playing around with the other animals and stuff didn't really start to change until we had like a couple of these genetic advantages start working in our favor. One of the big ones really just seems to be this like brain size element. He's got this great stat in here that mammals about uh, what our normal weight might have been back then, about 130 pounds, had this average brain size of only 12 cubic inches. Whereas like the earliest men and women two and a half million years ago had brain sizes of about 36 cubic inches, right? So three times the volume. And then modern sapiens have about 73 to 85 cubic inches. So it's like another doubling. And Neanderthals were even bigger, right? They didn't make it, obviously, for reasons we get into later. But it's just like, it's a massive difference in computing power related to other species. And one of the things I didn't know is that it seems like fire had a really big role to play in our ability to develop those big brains. Yep. Because it points out how the two most energy consumptive things in the body are typically the brain and the intestines. And by cooking food, we didn't need to work as hard to digest it. Yep. Where like monkeys will spend, what, a third of their, or two thirds of their day eating because they just have to chew and masticate all the time to digest their food. Yep. But since we could cook, we could eat way more efficiently. We didn't need as long of intestines. That could get smaller and our brains in response could get even bigger because they could use up more of our body's energy. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. And it's also, I think I've mentioned this book on the podcast before, but that book, Rare Earth. 
that oh, talked yeah. about like the evolution of intelligent life all the way from like the start of Earth down to like basically all the accidents that had to happen to get to intelligent life. That's one of the ones they bring up is the development of fire, right? Because like, I don't know, maybe fire seems like it was probably, you know, uh, captured by accident, right? I mean, there's a ton of like possibilities for how like a forest fire, you know, there's tons of ways, but at some point, some human probably figured out like, oh shit, we can capture this thing and like start it ourselves. That probably came about by accident. And that's so key to the evolution of humans. It's fascinating. It's fun to think about how those things might have been developed, right? What if that happened like 10,000 years later? Right. It's like we're talking about like 2.5 million years ago. So to us, it's like, oh, 2.5, 2.4. That's like 100,000 years different. Yeah. That's such a massive difference in time. <laughs> well, but I also just meant like imagining that progression, right? Oh, yeah. Because we, the surface level imagining is like, oh, somebody was like hitting sticks together and they made yeah. fire. It's like, that probably wasn't it. Right. right. They probably like found forest fires and there were charred animals. And they ate them and they're like, whoa, this shit's good. Yep. And then they found <laughs> another fire and then they said, okay, well, maybe we can like keep some stuff that's burning and like keep burning stuff and like try to keep a perpetual fire going and then maybe it was starting to go out and they tried stuff to keep it going and they realized like oh blowing on it like helps it right and so then they you know like maybe they drop a rock and it makes like a spark and like oh that kind of looks like how the fire looks right it's it's like that that working it backwards it's kind of fun to think about what was the iteration right and i guess there are a ton of myths that are common around the world around fire was like almost not almost a lot of myths say it was stolen from the gods so it's kind of like I could imagine them thinking like this whole thing about charred animals being, oh, that's really good, right? Like a lightning strike or some type of like forest fire that they think, oh, this is like a gift from the gods or there's a, you know, some god, like this is happening in another realm, essentially. And then they stole it. They figured out how to like take it, right? And like keep it alive or something. How do forest fires start besides lightning? That's a good question. Are there other ways? Is it just like... I know that contributing factors are like if there's a lot of dry material, right. that's easy for it to catch. But what catches? But but what I'm catches? curious how it starts, yeah. Yeah. It could be static too, or... Can it just spontaneously spring up? Yeah. Because obviously now it starts with like cigarette butts and sure. stuff like that, yeah. but way back in the day, right? Yo, Neanderthals, like man. They were smoking <laughs> antelope. <in> Neanderthal <laughs> Joe. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to insult all of our uh, blue-collar listeners now. <laughs> Why? Not all blue-collar people smoke cigarettes. <laughs> well, come okay, on, you're right. I'm yeah, the, come I'm the... on. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it looks like the four major natural causes are lightning, sparks from rock falls, oh. spontaneous oh. combustion, which doesn't do us any good, and volcanic <laughs> eruption. Oh, okay. volcanic eruption. Interesting. So, But actually, yeah, I mean, all of those things... Really, it would have seemed like it came from the gods, right? Because the only ones you would see yeah. would be volcanoes and lightning, Yeah, right? Does he talk about where people first found fire? Because I'm, I'm curious if that's an area that's predisposed to being dry no. or having thunderstorms or anything like that. I don't think we know. I mean, it would have yeah. to be Africa, Fertile Crescent type areas, right? Because oh, that's pretty much where all life originates. I just don't remember if he mentioned it. Oh, yeah. I don't think he mentions yeah. it. I, I don't think we know, too, right? Because there's also the extinction event. Right. That kind of like makes it hard to know. Yeah. But what's really interesting thinking, going back to what you said about imagining the progression, like I feel like someone could write some really good novels about this, but like, <laughs> that, are, that are like fiction, obviously, but would be really fun to like play out. Like, how did that spread throughout the world? Whoever invented it, like I would imagine that'd be a major competitive advantage, right? So they might, if it spread. If it spread or it was simultaneously developed in a lot of different places, right? Like it's very curious to know like how it pretty much became a universal technology. That's the cool thing with agriculture is that it sprung up in multiple places at around the same time. And so it seems like, oh, that's like just cool that, you know, whatever happened, we arrived at that at around the same time, multiple places in the world. To other people, it's like, well, obviously there was another intelligent like 
being on the planet <laughs> that like transmitted that knowledge to humans at that time right it's like a simulation if you've ever played like age of empires or something right when you move into the next age everybody moves everybody into the next yeah, exactly this <laughs> brings everyone with you yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like they just wake up and there's farms now. Although the simulation gods had to try out <laughs> agriculture in a few places and worked out well in some, not so well in others. So. There's this article, uh, Why Everything Took So Long. And I think the three of us may have discussed it, or maybe I discussed it with Nick Andoni. But at any rate, it talks about the increasing pace of mm-hmm. like new tools mm-hmm. and the likes because you have these foundational tools. So I think another possible theory is, you know, you have like a tribe of folks and they're maybe like fashioning a spear or something where they're knocking two rocks together and then they like hit a spark and they start making fires. But then now they have fires and they have those other tools. So that's easier for them to settle because, you know, because they have this arsenal of tools and along with, you know, whatever, fire, all the other stuff. Yeah, right? the other people. Uh, so the rate just increases. And it doesn't seem too unlikely to me that, you know, of, I guess, a few hundred thousand sapiens around the world, that a couple of them are striking rocks at the same time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Next to some twigs. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's also... We only know of the civilizations that developed that kind of technology to live long enough to be discovered later, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it might seem like, oh, all the major civilizations in the world discovered agriculture around the same time. And it's like, well, no, the only ones that survived did. It could just be like a filtering bias, basically. A filtering and possibly like a magnet, right? Where it's like a few figured it out and then everybody like came and joined them, right? That's true, too. That's That could be a big part of it as well. As far as evolutionary history goes, around the same time is probably like, what, 10,000 years? I, I don't know yeah. what it is. But <laughs> That's true, too. Yeah. It could be like, yeah, it could also just be the, the time frames are so big yeah. that to us, it, it seems like around the same time, but it could be <laughs> the same as like somebody being like, well, Rome and America were around the same time, right? Like, yeah. it was 2000 or like 19, 1700s and like zero. It's what's, basically the same, right? What's really miraculous is everything going on now. Where it's like within the same couple of years, right. that is like it's like Google and Facebook right around the same yeah. time. But although there were, you know, probably what five years between them, five six years. Although transfer of knowledge is way easier now. That's true. So yeah, that yeah. explains that. iPhones oh, and the but... internet came up around the same time. <laughs> they did. It depends on your time on evolutionary history. Time exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it depends on your. Well, no, but I think that you have to change that now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, but I'm saying like I'm saying like let's say five thousand years from now, right? Oh, yeah, they look back, they'd be like, yeah, yeah those come came up around the same time, like, <laughs> right? If they even, I don't even know what humans will be in 5,000 years. That's, that's for next week. Yeah, that's next week. Yeah, that's next week. Oh, spoiler alert. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think we've already mentioned it like three times. And we've also mentioned it in the email newsletter. Yeah, which, which everyone should join. Majorthinkpodcast.com. But actually, I mean, he's got the dates on some of the agriculture stuff, right? Yeah. So it happened about 9,500 to 8,500 BC. And what I thought was kind of interesting about that is that pretty much nothing of note has been domesticated in the last 2,000 years. So everything that we eat today, for the most part, we were eating 2000 years ago. And there's like a pretty spread out trajectory before that of people domesticating things. So he's got this short timeline where it's like wheat and goats around 9000 BC, peas and lentils around 8000 BC, olive trees by 5000, horses by 4000 and grapevines in 3500. And then just like other little things along the way, but then domesticating almost nothing in the last 2000. Yeah. And the other thing that was cool, too, is that there are certain things that just can't be domesticated, like truffles. Like I didn't know that. I didn't know that you literally just can't domesticate them, which is why you have to use the pigs and dogs to to go out and find them. Right. It's what keeps them valuable, I guess. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or and then certain animals, I guess, are more attuned to being domesticated, like dogs and cattle and horses and others are just like much harder to tame. Like I assume lions and yeah, lions are hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess cats are no cats were wild, all right. Like it's not like the cats that are house cats today are fully. Domestic. Yeah, I don't think they're yeah. really domesticated. I don't even think. Cause I was gonna say they're like semi-domesticated animals, still. Yeah, they're just an animal that lives in your house <laughs> and decides not to or eat that you. Or you live in their house. Yeah, or you live in their <laughs> house, <laughs> perhaps. That's what they think. <laughs> this exactly. monkey that lives in my house can't get rid of him, <laughs> but he gives me food, so it's okay. <laughs> okay. So I thought there was one re- another really interesting thing near the beginning mm-hmm. uh, that was around tolerance. Oh yeah. So I'm just gonna read that out loud because I think it's a really interesting thing. So all right, this is from the book. Tolerance is not a sapiens trademark. In modern times, a small difference in skin color, dialect, or religion has been enough to prompt one group of sapiens to set about exterminating another group. Would ancient sapiens have been more tolerant towards an entirely different human species? It may well be that when sapiens encountered Neanderthals, the result was the first and most significant ethnic cleansing campaign in history. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because... He's right. Like we do not have a strong <laughs> skill of being tolerant. And yeah, I mean, I, do they really know what made the Neanderthals die out? Or is it like a lot of speculation? We have a few like, theories. Yeah. Yeah. Interbreeding and replacement. So from the book, when Homo sapiens landed in Arabia, most of Eurasia was already settled by other humans. What happened to them? There are two conflicting theories. The interbreeding theory tells a story of attraction, sex, and mingling. As the African immigrants spread around the world, they bred with other human populations, and people today are the outcome of this interbreeding. The opposing view, called the replacement theory, tells a very different story, one of incompatibility, revulsion, and perhaps even genocide. Yeah, but is there strong evidence in favor of one versus the other, or is it kind of like the jury's still out? I feel like the best conclusion is that it's a bit of both. Yeah, well, Because yeah. we all have some Neanderthal DNA. Apparently, the only way you don't have any Neanderthal DNA is if you're pure African. I think that's the only genetic composition that has like none. Interesting. Whereas if you're more, I think it's Middle Eastern and Mediterranean, you have a bit more Neanderthal DNA. And then kind of like as you move away from that in different directions, you have less of it. So if you do 23andMe, uh, it can tell you what percent you are. You've done it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What percent are you? I think I'm like 1% Neanderthal or like half a percent. Something not huge. Some people, I think it goes up to like three or four. Wow relatively high but they've got like the full neanderthal genome sequence now so they can see exactly you know where it is in there and so that obviously gives some credence to the the intermingling intermingling. yeah but if it was like full intermingling that seems like it would be higher right yeah or i guess it maybe it's been it's been a long time well no no no. i mean like if it was actual oh intermingling we would still be like 25 50 percent right right? yeah because the the child would be like 50 50 Right. And then that child would mate with another child who was 50 50, yeah, then they would still be 50 50. Still be 50 50. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. If it's gotten that small, like, then it couldn't, it was probably never that high. Yeah. I mean, it was probably honestly like a generally genocide thing. But then, you know, there's like that one person in the camp who's all like hot and bothered about the Neanderthals <laughs> and like runs off and then has the baby with them. But it's like, well, okay, we'll let the kids stay. Well, right. But like, don't go, tell everybody else. I was going to go somewhere even darker than that. Cause like genocides or like any kind of like one population oppressing the other pretty much has always entailed rape too. Like oh. where invading armies have always been yeah, rapers but... and, and pillagers. And then the other thing is like, I was thinking slavery was another thing where there's a lot of 
like there was mixing of white and black genes, but not voluntary. Right. It was, yeah. I guess if they had enslaved Neanderthal women and then they had kids and then they were like putting or, the kids to or work. If or if there was a battle or something and like they killed the Neanderthal men and raped the women or something like I could see something like that. Also yeah. being a possibility. And then some of those kids somehow survive and yeah. work their way into normal society. The genocide rape thing is, I don't know, strangely recent in my mind. So I also did 23 and me mm. and, uh, my map, they, they give you like a little, you know, where you're from. It's just the Ottoman Empire plus Pakistan, uh, right? So it's like I have some genes from basically all over Europe, right? And you think in terms of if you go about two to the 10 is like 10, I don't know, my math's not great. But it's like a, within like 10 generations, I have at that level, I have a thousand ancestors. And just imagine like amongst that many people, if you sum it up with everyone until now, like yep. the odds that at least one of that was a either something forced or unwitting in any capacity and then you look back like yeah. ten thousand years right, right i know yeah. it's like it's, it's like just, pretty much guaranteed yeah unfathomable it's like pretty much guaranteed it's also interesting how these genealogies of that that tree has changed because of imperialism oh right, right? because yeah. these, this certain set of genes from europe just went everywhere right yeah. right yeah. it'd be really interesting <laughs> to see 23 and me from like right before yeah you know what did it look like <laughs> uh, yeah so what yeah. did it look like in like i don't know yeah. 1500 or something you're like like i didn't realize how absurd some of this stuff was and then one day i was getting a bond me and I was like, holy shit, like, this is a Vietnamese sandwich, but it's on French bread. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> That's what it is. This is yeah. totally imperialist legacy. Like, we're not eating banh mi's. Like, well, let's just be clear, though. They're, they're delicious. They're they amazing. Are. Yeah. Well, and it depends on, there's two kinds of banh mi. Like, the Vietnamese banh mi is on, like, French bread. Sure. Yeah, that's on top. What's the other one? The other one's on, like, the pork bun, where it's on, like, the, I don't know what you call that kind of bread. But I had the same thought when we were in Vietnam. I was like, what the fuck is a baguette doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, oh. oh. <laughs> the same reason there's like a giant Catholic church in downtown Saigon. Right? Yeah, it's I like, that it. shouldn't be there either. <laughs> yeah. it. It's like a Notre Dame copy paste. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's also uh, the French Opera House. There's like a copy paste of that of downtown Saigon. Wow. It's just like this whole little French quarter with like all this fancy shopping and stuff. It looks like you're in Paris. And then there's like a faux stand on the corner. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Harari does dive into the impact of imperialism on history, though. Yeah. Yeah. Just undeniably. Later. Much later. Yeah. We should get to that later, then. Yeah, we're still got, we got like 50,000 years to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ahead of this, is a long, yeah. this is a long episode, guys. Come, buckle come. in. <laughs> buckle in. <laughs> uh, but so basically, as those brains got bigger, we started to move into what he calls like the cognitive revolution, right? So between 70,000 and 30,000 years ago. And this is really defined by language. Right, where we start moving from just pure, you know, kind of like state of nature, dogs, monkeys, whatever, running around eating things to being able to communicate more richly. And one of the things he points out here is that the main difference between us is that we're the only ones who seem to talk primarily about each other and not just like resources and danger and stuff. And we're also really the only animal that can talk about entities that we've never seen, touched or smelled, right? Imaginary things. And that kind of lays the foundation for fiction and for mythology. And that shared mythology eventually becomes our big competitive advantage in nature. It's the mythology and it's also the ability to pass down knowledge, I think, is the other mm -hmm. thing. Like imagine a, this is not true, but imagine a chimpanzee in its lifetime learned some things that were like interesting, right? Like, oh, you should not go to that tree because it's there's poisonous mushrooms that grow under that or whatever. And like there's some things, I guess, that could be passed on to the next generation, but there's no way of like codifying that knowledge and sharing it with all chimpanzees everywhere, right? Whereas humans, it's like, if you go discover something, well, obviously today with the internet, it's even easier, but... 
having even verbal language. I think we talked about this during Power of Myth, that so many myths are just like spoken word poems even so that they could be remembered. And even if you didn't have written language, you had effectively figured out a way to transfer knowledge down your family tree, basically, and to the rest of your tribe. I heard that's why poetry was invented. That was how it came up, because it was easier to remember. But I don't know if that's true or that's just a myth in itself. It makes sense. I mean, there's some like really ancient Roman texts on how to remember things better, mm. right? So they're actually really big in the memory community because, you know, people who are super into like card memorization yeah. and stuff, they look at the old like Roman resources from before writing was really big because those guys could memorize these like huge speeches and long poems and all this stuff and like everyone could do it, right? So it was something they just taught each other and poetry was a big element of it that if there's like a rhyming scheme to it, it's just way easier well, to remember. Well, it's it. like how you remember songs. Like yeah. you remember songs so much easier. Like you can't get them out of your head sometimes. It's like that makes no sense. Like exactly. I have no emotional connection to this or whatever, but it's just like they just, <laughs> they just like they just flow, right? It was just like, you'll hear the song in your head all day. And you're like, man, I need to get another song to, <laughs> to override that one. Definition of rote memorization has also evolved, though. Uh, I forget where I read this, but when they <sighs> talk about folks who'd recite like thousand line poems, you know, I don't know, however long a year ago, there was really no, you know, oracle to compare it against. Right, that's right? True. Whereas now you yeah. can record things and you can be like, oh, you were off here, you're off yep. there. You missed right? a word here or exactly. there, yeah. So I think the the bar has been raised. Oh, no, that's that's absolutely true. But I guess you could communicate the idea of something, right? You you yeah, might not have yeah. the like you may say one thing, and I may go tell the other person, and I might change the wording slightly, but I might yeah. be able to communicate the core idea. That's more of what I meant. Of like yeah. by creating spoken language, humans were able to like figure out how to transfer knowledge from yeah. one person to another. I think written took that to the next level, but that comes a lot later. Yeah. Well, and it also creates I don't know if it's like issues, but like challenges in interpretation. Right, where it's like the Bible was basically spoken word for 300 yeah. years at least, right? Especially with like a lot of different stories in the New Testament coming together. And so it's easy to see how some of that stuff where it's being spoken word and going across multiple languages can get like misinterpreted pretty quickly, right. or, like change what it means. I mean, like, I think the best example of this is the whole walking on water thing, where it's like if you look at how it could have been written in like the original script, it could also be read as walking by the water. Oh, right. But that's like a much less interesting story. If you want it to be more memorable and stuff, then it's like, oh, on the water. Right. It's like a lot of little things like oh, that. Man. I'll try to find. Oh, I heard about for the Old Testament too some of those stories might be way older than the old testament is right oh, they were just likely, added yeah, to them. oh most likely yeah because they they have i think this camp in power of myth yeah right where it's a like lot of those parallel. stories are basically the same in other cultures that it would seem were not related right it's like the was it the adam and eve one where it's like there's that story of same. a gardener for the yep. gods is like in a few different cultures around the world the flood. Uh, the flood. The flood shows up everywhere, which he talks about too in, in a bit. Well, the flood, I think there's decent geological evidence that something like that actually happened, mm. but it's just not clear like the exact magnitude of it or the speed that it happened. So some people think like an asteroid hit. Some people think it was like glacial melting from the end of an ice age. There's like a few theories, but a tsunami. it seems like there was something like that that did happen. And that's how it got into all these myths because it's even in like Plato's Republic, right? It's like not just religious stuff. So. Yeah. Well, oh, like, and they, they all say it happened at the same time. That's the crazier part. Oh, interesting. I didn't it's know It's like that multiple part. religious cultures, like and the Republic and all of them say it happened about what is now 12,000 years ago, I think. Huh. So. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's like super interesting. <laughs> so it must have been a big ass flood. Yeah. Well, I was thinking this is maybe our tangent number one. Reminded me of the aquatic apes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I 
love the aquatic games. Not a good episode without aquatic games. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I was like, I wonder if Noah was a aquatic ape and was able to figure it out. One, and then, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you want more on the aquatic ape theory, you can go listen to our Darwin's Dangerous Idea episode. Oh, I love the aquatic ape. Did I tell you my sister actually brought it up with her professor? Oh, she did? Yeah. What did she say? All right. Yeah, we need so to hear they, this. They, so, like, background, my sister studies, like, human evolutionary biology uh, at Harvard, and she brought it up with them. And they all were just sort of like, no, this is dumb. There's, like, one who was, like, kind of sympathetic to it. But his main criticism was that there's just not enough, like coastal areas in Africa that would have been habitable for like our lineage to actually have like evolved in an aquatic environment, so which I don't he, find super convincing. I was going to say, how but, did he explain away then the, all the things Dennett brought up around like know, the right? fact, you know, that we have like those weird shaped feet compared to other mammals. I, and... I'm still bullish on the aquatic apes. <laughs> I, I have too. I have too. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe, yeah, maybe I, we can make this our pet project. I'm holding out proof. for it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like them saying all this stuff about, you know, like, oh, humans didn't arrive in the American continents until X year. And then they find Every some remains. Yeah. They keep goes, finding yeah. older <laughs> remains. It's like, all right. Yeah. But we didn't build any buildings before, you know, 6,000 years ago. And then we find like, what's it called? Coco Tepe or whatever. Mm. It was like 9,000 years ago, but they were like hunter gatherers building. It's in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. It was also in a Joseph Campbell book. I read it at some point, maybe not that long ago, a couple months ago. Not Power of Myth, another one. Oh, okay. Uh, that's around, it's around primitive mythology. So that's oh, okay. it's volume one of his like four part series, which I've only read volume one so far. But he talks about like how a lot of, he was talking about alcohol and then he was talking about structures. So he brought up that example oh. where he's saying structures may have started as a religious kind of thing. Like, as, and that's, he always views everything through the mythology lens, obviously, right? And the religious lens. So he was like saying how, different tribes might have had shared, you know, religious beliefs or myths. So they would like come together to do like maybe like a once a year type of ceremony kind of thing, you know, or around certain events come together and then they would just build structures there over time because we always come back to this area. Yeah. So his theory was like, maybe that's how cities or towns even got started because then some people would be like, oh, we'll just stay here. Well, and if they were all coming back there and were like carrying wheat seeds on their feet and on their clothing and stuff, then suddenly wheat would start growing there and then like, oh, this is kind of cool. we should just stay here right yep. the gods are rewarding us for you know for building this. this it's cool to think about how this stuff would yeah come up i mean one thing that doesn't come up in here that i remember learning at some point was that like the mesopotamian valley area is like super crazy with flooding mm-hmm. and drought or it can be at least and so the mythology there was very like the gods are evil because they would just randomly like flood everything and kill all the crops and then they'd have an amazing year and then a terrible year amazing year terrible year whereas high variance yeah super high variance right whereas in egypt the nile was like pretty predictable most of the time and never you know completely went crazy and killed everything and so the egyptian gods were more like benign and benevolent and it's kind of cool just how it's like those little aspects in the geography and where they were living has such a big impact on the mythology that sprang up around it. Yeah. I believe during the religion portion of the book, Harari discusses not the, I forget what the word is, but where there's two gods that are warring. Oh, the Zoroastrian. I don't remember the name of the religion, but there's a category of religion. Basically, the gist oh, of it is yeah. where you have, instead of one god that's omniscient, you have two gods that are fighting, and there's a good god and an evil god. And the one that he cites in the book is actually from the Mesopotamian basin. Oh, cool. So I didn't realize that the flooding thing was happening. I don't think he mentions it in the book, but it's interesting how those two tie together. Yeah, you I, can see how that was yeah. like, oh, this god is winning. We need to yeah. like, sacrifice more to the other yeah, god. Help yeah. the other god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that goes back to the collective 
knits that we're able to weave together for ourselves to understand the world. Back to the book. Yeah. But yeah, because that's what he's getting into here in this next section is that we developed these brains, cognitive revolution, we could communicate, and that allowed us to create these shared myths. And that was the defining thing that let us get past Dunbar's number, this limit of there's only about 150 people you can keep in your head at once that you can gossip about that you can kind of keep tabs on. And if you want to be in a community of larger than 150, you need to have some sort of shared mythology. And that could be anything, right? It could be Christianity. It could be Jordan Peterson fan. It could be, you know, made you think exactly. It's thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. (laughs) Hey, depending on when someone listens to this episode, that could be true. That's true. It could be true. (laughs) Going back. But yeah, so that was like the main thing that let us cooperate in much larger numbers and you know, one of the theories that Harari brings up in the book is that that could have been why we beat out Neanderthals. That we're able to... Like, exactly. That we were able to cooperate in larger groups because it seems like they were bigger, stronger, smarter, potentially, but they didn't cooperate in as large of numbers as we did. And that could have just allowed us to win out. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's absolutely related to that, right, is this... Like, as soon as you hear that, as soon as you read that, I don't know about you guys, that was like a mind-blowing paragraph for me when we, when he first brought up this point. Because yeah. especially he goes on to say, like, legal systems are rooted in the same sort of shared mythology. And you know what it came back to this time when I was reading it? Finite and Infinite Games. Uh, because it's like, we're all agreeing that no matter what the myth shared mythology is, you're essentially agreeing on the rules of the game. Right. So the rules could be that this god brings us rain and this god brings us you know, sun and this God like Mm. destroys us. Right. But we're all agreeing that those are the rules that we're playing by when we live in the U S or a Western society. Right. We believe in like the laws that we have as a society and we're all sort of playing by those laws. And that's like our common identity as Americans or Westerners or, you know, whatever our shared mythology would be or like podcast listener, you know, like whatever the group you're part of, it's all rooted in playing by like effectively setting up the same boundaries of the game, the boundary conditions of the game. And, Everyone agreeing to that. Well, he's got this great section here that, and and this was one of my favorite parts of the book, is this example. So I'm just going to read this short section because I think it encapsulates it perfectly. Two Catholics who have never met may nevertheless go together on crusade or pool funds to build a hospital because they both believe that God was incarnated in human flesh and allowed himself to be crucified to redeem our sins. States are rooted in common national myths. Two Serbs who have never met might risk their lives to save one another because both believe in the existence of the Serbian nation, the Serbian homeland, and the Serbian flag. Judicial systems are rooted in common legal myths. Two lawyers who have never met can nevertheless combine efforts to defend a complete stranger because they both believe in the existence of laws, justice, human rights, and the money paid out in fees. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. So I think like taking this one step further, going back to what you're saying about the Neanderthals yeah. versus humans, that this is a actually like killer competitive advantage that humans have, right? It's like if no other creature really, ha- at least as far as we know, has this competitive advantage that we've figured out. And um I think this is the root of the Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson disagreement on what reality is, right? So Peterson's argument is that like humans have this experience field, right? Like we we see things through a certain experience and that that is evolutionarily like very valuable and it's real because of that. So like these myths are obviously myths, but because we all agree on them and it's it leads to our survival, it's a real thing. And Sam Harris is saying these things don't actually exist. Well, in using these examples, right, there's no human rights, there's no nations, there's no money. Like none of these things are actual things. Right. 
they're just shared experience. Even dollar bills, right? Or there's pieces of paper, like, but because we all believe in them, they have value. I think it's like the crux of this debate. I mean, I, there's no right answer. They're both right. Of course, they're real because we all believe they're real, but objectively, they're not. Like, there's no gods, there's no nations, there's no, like, well, I think it's that thing little... by Harari, that's true, what he wrote there. Yeah. But we, I, all, we all believe in them, so. I think the truth distinction between Harris and Peterson is a little different, though, where I think Harris is saying that if it's not, like, you know, a math type of truth, right. then it's not true. Yeah. But Peterson is saying that religious truth is true because it's useful and it survives. Or myth- right? I would say mythological. Mythological truth, yeah. right? And it's kind of like what Taleb says in Skin in the Game, right? It's like, if it helps you survive, then it's true. So that's right, exactly that's, what I'm saying, but I think yeah. you said it a lot better. Okay. <laughs> so, well, so like, cause I would say by that same logic, right? Like the nation of the United States, it's not objectively, like there's not a mathematical certainty that that's a real thing. But I think Harris right? would say that the U.S. is real. Well, Harari would say it's not, though, I feel Actually, like. No, I think Harari right? talks about like physical manifestations of ideas. Yeah. So, you know, we have the border, you have troops. Yep. You have, you know, buildings, you have flags, right? You have, it enters the real world. So you, even if everyone collectively was like, it's not real, there are physical manifestations we then have to go and right. wipe down before we could say it's yeah. no longer the case. So what I'm wondering is like, what is then the distinction between that versus somebody doing like saying like for a religion, right? Like, cause there's physical manifestations of a religion, like churches, mosques, temples. Well, I think so that's effectively a, those are the same that's a little, myths. Yeah, I guess that's where it gets hard. I'm also, right? doing, uh, I'm also like well, devil's advocate. Well, no, I, but it, this, this is a good distinction, right? Where it's like, I don't think Harari would say that the U.S. doesn't exist, right? But he would say that it is a shared mythology. Yeah, so that's right? exactly what I'm saying. So it exists in the same way that other shared mythologies. And then in that exist. sense, then yes, like the Christian God does exist. Yeah, well, right? like and people go to war for religions, like people have done that throughout history. But I think the difference is that some people will say that no, the Christian God exists in fact. I see, okay, right? yeah. And that... Right. Harari and Harris and Peterson would all say like, no, right. It exists in our minds. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. And then I think where Peterson and Harris get into a disagreement is that Peterson says that like these religious myths, like, uh, or not even religious myths, let's just say like a dragon myth, right. Is true because it's a useful thing to believe. Yeah. Right. It's like a survivability. Actually, the example I really like is the porcupine example. Have you heard this one? It's the, so a lot of people believe porcupines can throw their quills right <sighs> they can't so they, they can't shoot their quills but a lot of people believe that that'd be and, a dangerous animal that they could shoot yeah, right? <laughs> but believing that is kind of a good thing right because then you won't get close enough where it could like jump at you right right okay so it's a so, useful myth it's a useful myth yeah and i think peterson would be at least on the line of saying like well then it's basically true right because obviously it's not true that they throw their quills but it's true that you shouldn't get too close to a porcupine right and okay. the way you arrive at that truth Doesn't could matter, be through basically. a falsehood but that part is still true so yes. it's like the idea of like if you sacrifice something for the present it'll lead to good exactly. things in the future that's it's like true yeah but the causal nature of that is not the same making like a person in the sky yes. happy that right. part's not true right so but it'll like, get you there yeah it's like the circular logic to get there basically and so i think harris doesn't like going through a falsehood to get to a truth but peterson is okay with it so and that's kind of like celeb where it's kind of like the outcome's really the only thing that shows yeah what's right or wrong basically exactly yeah the only thing that matters is the result of it and Got if it. it helps you survive then sure like then who cares whatever shit then who cares yeah. <laughs> yeah like if it works it doesn't it matter. works it works Right. Yeah. It's like, and that's kind of compelling, right? Because I think there is also this element where we can understand things that we cannot articulate and that we don't have like justifications for. Right? Have you ever like met someone and been like, mm, right? I don't. There's something off with this person. Like, I don't feel totally safe. Or you enter a room and you're like, something feels wrong here. Yeah. I think that's true, right? And I think you should leave and like not talk to that person, right? 
even though you can't explain the reason. And that's probably what I think Peterson's argument is getting at, too, is that sometimes we can know things to be true without having like a logical, you know, rational explanation for them. Well, there's so many variables like we even saw in uh, what everybody is saying, right? Yeah, exactly. All the body language, so stuff. Many body language things that, you know, probably we innately know some of them. And that might be giving you that feeling of right, you know, uneasiness, right. like, oh, this person, something's wrong. Like he's touching his face. But you wouldn't explicitly think, oh, he's touching his face and shifting his eyes away from me. So therefore he must be like, it's not as explicit as that. It's more just, you know, and you can't necessarily articulate it. Now everyone's going to maintain eye contact, stand up straight. Dude, that was the problem during that episode. It's like every time we'd say something, I would have such a strong urge to do it. I'd just be like, oh, I want to touch my face, but he's going to think I'm lying. Oh, man. Uh, maybe we should have like a camera at some point for some of those types of episodes. Yeah, we need to record like them. How uncomfortable we're getting. I want to pull us back um, a little bit because I think that's an interesting point to be made about the Neanderthals. So okay. one thing that Harari does discuss is that, you know, we have bones, you have, you know, if there's a burial site, you have some gems, whatever it might be, right? You have drawings on the cave wall, but you lose all semblance of culture. Mm. And a lot of what he discussed in the book is that some cultures can be maybe not self-defeating, but not self-perpetuating. So an example here might be a missionary religion versus one that is not, right? The missionary religion, whether the one, is, which one's right or wrong is irrelevant. The missionary right. one is going to perpetuate. Interesting, right? yeah. So you could almost make an argument, like his argument for why Sapiens survived is somewhat self-congratulatory. You know, like mm. there's a number of arguments that could be made for Neanderthals. Maybe the culture was more sophisticated, so they had fewer kids, right? Whereas yeah. sapiens yeah. were running around it could having also just kids. Be, it could also be just right? that. Well, I mean, there's we just a... really wanted to have sex all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the... Well, the perfect analog to Neanderthals are like, what? Ne look at those Neanderthals. Over there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we just call them the Neanderthals as we won, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the perfect analog today would be like Islam and Judaism, right? Yeah. Where it's like, Islam is a way more successful religion than Judaism, but it's not necessarily like better, right? It's just much more missionary focused than right. Judaism. So it's like much bigger, yeah. right? So, but just because it's winning out doesn't mean that it's better. Right. So the Neanderthals could have actually been, yeah, it's kind of like to your point, right? And I think he kind of hints at that in the book too. It's like these guys were smarter and more capable. And it's like, you know, in terms of the whole like Ubermensch ideal, yeah. it seems like they were closer to it than us. <laughs> so we, we went out by some sort of like fluke of history. We probably shouldn't have. Or maybe we were just, as, I think like your point about just being like missionary versus not is a really interesting or really interesting point. We were just way more savage, right? Like, that's maybe all the yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm imagining like you ever played Civ? Like civilization, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So, you know, in civilization, the video game, right? You can take a few different tracks where you're like, okay, you try to be like a peaceful nation. You try to be like a warmongering nation, try to be like scientifically focused. And the nations that try to, you know, be peaceful and go for culture, like it's cute and all, but they just get ran over <laughs> by the more warmongering ones usually. So it could be that Neanderthals are like, yo guys, let's be friends. Come on. Like we got some great pot over here. Yeah. You can like <laughs> hang out. We can, you know, just like have a love fest. And the sapiens are like, oh yeah, sure. And it's like, ah, stab, 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 yeah. right? So we, we just could be like a really fucked up species and murdered this wonderful peace and love like super giants. I mean, you could even take it a step further. Maybe it's not peace and love. Maybe they are so much further evolved that they have these subcultures. Imagine the world now, right? Like oh, feuding yeah. nations. If some third party, like some extraterrestrial came and challenged the earth, we'd have so much trouble getting everyone on the same page. Yeah. You know, we would probably too. just do ourselves in before we could respond to the threat. 
Yeah, it's a good point. So the Neanderthals, they may have just been so much further along. Just, <laughs> I don't know, right? They, they just couldn't get it Reddit together. Subreddit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like on their computers. Yeah. Like, we'll deal with them later. Yeah. <laughs> Those annoying pests, Those humans. Annoying pests, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you guys both bring up a really good point of like, and he hints at it in the book too, is like the omission of evidence doesn't mean like the omission of those things in reality. Yeah. And we just, it's like the unknown unknowns, right? There's just like probably so many things we just will never have a historical record of because it was not made with a, um, a any material. There's no evidence that was left over that would have survived to now. That's the thing. They could have had writing. Yeah, where I was thinking, what if there's a religion that like, or a civilization that like worshiped leaves or something, just make it up. Oh. Like the leaves would have degraded in like a year, right? So like we would just never, like yeah. what if they were writing on those leaves or something, you know, the original Snapchat, like <laughs> I'll write you a message on a leaf and then it'll disappear <laughs> next spring or something. Like, I don't know. It's just like, there are things like that where the ones, the evidence that has survived is only the evidence that was on a material that would have survived today. Well, he points that out in the next section that the stone age should really be called the wood age. Yes. Because most tools were wood, but obviously those ones don't last, right? We only see the stone tools. So there could be all this other shit people were making with wood that we've never seen. That's apparently one of the hard things with tracking these early seafaring societies, right? Is that they were making boats out of wood and Mm -hmm. cloth and stuff, but none of that lasts. So we have no idea, you know, what stuff actually looked like, where they went. Like there's some theories that to explain these earlier and earlier settlements in the American continents, that there were actually some seafaring groups that just kind of like skirted along that like Serbian land bridge or Syrian, Serbian? Which one's the Russian one? Siberia. Siberia. There we go. Yeah. That Siberian land bridge into Alaska. And they just like, you know, we're basically canoeing down the entire coast of the Americas, right? But we don't have any boats left to like right. prove it. So it's just sort of like a cool idea. Yeah. Kind of makes you think about how much of our value today. Ah, you're doing it too. <laughs> there we yeah. go. Uh, take a shot. Okay. <laughs> so much of our value today is ephemeral. Like oh, yeah. On the, anything on the internet, right? Right. If whatever infrastructure there is doesn't make it to the whatever's next then it's, you know, it's and fun. imagine as books move on to those things as well, someone's going to look back and be like, damn, they got rid of books. Yeah. <laughs> like, what <laughs> were you doing? stopped reading. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. yeah. Should we talk about uh, history's greatest fraud? Yeah, I think we definitely need to jump ahead to there because we are almost an hour in and we have not left the first section. So <laughs> let's hop uh, into agriculture. Should I, let me grab one of these. Do it. Rather than heralding a new era of easy living, the agricultural revolution left farmers with lives generally more difficult and less satisfying than those of foragers. Hunter-gatherers spent their time in more stimulating and varied ways and were less in danger of starvation and disease. The agricultural revolution certainly enlarged the sum total of food at the disposal of humankind, but the extra food did not translate into a better diet or more leisure. Rather, it translated into population explosions and pampered elites. The average farmer worked harder than the average forager and got a worse diet in return. The agricultural revolution was history's biggest fraud. You know, the other things that he doesn't mention, I mean, just in this one paragraph, is the explosion of disease. Mm, yeah. Right? You have everyone together. Yep. And then to pull Taleb into this, one of the things I find <laughs> is you're much more fragile in an agricultural society. Yeah. Right. If the you know if locusts swarm and kill your wheat, I don't know, what do they kill? They kill wheat. Whatever they kill. The wheat dies. The wheat dies. Okay. Yeah. The wheat dies from something. The wheat something. dies. You have no more wheat, right? If that's all you cultivated, or maybe yeah. that's one of two things you cultivated, then you are wiped out. Oh, yeah. Well, and there's, there's a lot of elements like that, right? So one, you're reliant on just a single crop or two, maybe like a crop and an animal. 
And so if one of those gets knocked out, like you're screwed. Plus, since you're stationary, you get all these diseases that you never got before. Like hunter-gatherers didn't really have infectious diseases in the same way that we do now because they weren't on top of each other. Imagine all the like animals on top of each other. Like I'm sure they didn't because they didn't understand the theory of disease. Yeah, no no germ theory. Right. So you have like animals, humans, and all now find you know concentrated in one small area. Like yeah, disease would have been way worse than with hunter-gatherers. And you're gonna be like a lot more people in one area, obviously. So that compounds things probably, and obviously more violence too. Yeah, well, I was gonna say now there's a target. Yeah, there's no target target. with hunter-gatherers as much. There might be, but it's not as bad. You introduce personal property, right? There's no need for property before agriculture. But once you have like, this is my wheat and this is like my cow and like my area. There's a time investment too, right? It's like if you got to cultivate it starting, you know, like in the spring, really, or even the winter preparing the fields and then you don't get your payoff until the autumn, right? So you're Someone could just swoop in late summer and be like, all right, thanks, guys. This is thanks. all mine now. <laughs> right? But like with hunter-gatherers, that wasn't really a, a thing. Like you couldn't do that. Yeah, so it incentivized violence, really. Yeah. Because now you could, if you didn't want to work for those nine months, you just start working in August and just start taking over places and you're good. Well, but it's also crazy to see how easily that could develop, right? Yeah. It's where they, they you know... There's some area that has wheat and then, you know, they harvest the wheat or whatever and they're eating like, oh, this is awesome. And they go do their hunter gatherer thing and they come back and like wheat's there again. Like, oh, that's cool. And then they realize that like, well, more wheat is growing. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's like maybe these seed things and they're like spreading them around and then more of it's growing. Like, oh, this is awesome. Why do we need to go other places? We'll just like eat this wheat. Yep. And then like, oh, okay, we have to do a little work. And then like they slowly do less hunting and more tending to the wheat. And then after you know, only like four or five generations of that, like the kids won't know how to hunt at all. Right. Because the, the parents will go out and hunt, the kids will take care of the wheat and stuff because like, that's easy, right? Yeah. You just leave them home to do that. And then the kid grows up with no hunting experience, right. no foraging in the wilderness experience. All they know how to do is manage the wheat. And then they like can't escape, right? They're stuck. Yep. The skills are gone. Yeah, the skills are gone. There's no like written guide. They can't go on Google and be like, yo, how do I learn how to hunt? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, like I, I'm going to do that later this year, but that's like we well, would something we can only do now, right? <laughs> I mean, if you, if people forgot how to hunt, like back in the day, they're just kind of screwed. Well, and so. what you read about hunter-gatherers is the nuance that's involved in both hunting and gathering, right? Yeah. Is like, there's so many, like, probably skills you can't verbalize. Like, you've, you've got to know that this mushroom kills you exactly. and this one yep. is delicious and this one lets you see God, right? Yeah, or like the smell is like, is indicative of like a area where there's probably going to be an animal that's going to be here and kill you. <laughs> well, and the running, right? Because one of the main ways humans hunted is just running right. animals down. We can run Longer. longest distance the yeah. fastest, yeah. right? So if you haven't been out doing that, yeah, I just cardio home, skills. Your cardio is not going to be good enough. Right? Staying at home eating wheat. Staying at home, yeah, <laughs> just eating your eating your Wonder Bread, <laughs> chilling on the farm. You're not going to be able to run down a horse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Well, this also reminded me, uh, so I like how he called it history's biggest fraud. It also reminded me, this is going to seem out of left field, but it's, I think there's an analogy to be made here is um, social media. So it's like, I could see like social media where it's like, oh, you make a Facebook account, you can connect with your friends and you can post your pictures. Oh, but like now you should use messenger. Oh, but also what about like WhatsApp? What about Instagram? What about like, and then it just like slowly starts creeping. And it's almost like one day, no, it's not one day you wake up, but at some point it becomes like, holy shit, like we have to use this now. (laughs) We're just like, we don't know how to live without this stuff now. 
I'm not, so I'm not saying it's at the same level as the agricultural revolution, but I'm just saying like, it's one of those things where you don't see how the end game comes while you're in the middle of the game, basically at the start. Like, it just seems like a very, I don't know when you guys signed up for Facebook, but I remember when I signed up for Facebook initially was when I was like a sophomore in high school and it wasn't like any major, like, I don't remember thinking it was a major decision. It was just like, oh, I'll just sign up for Facebook. Like I didn't realize the impact that Facebook was going to have. You never expected that in 10 years, you'd have an existential question about whether or not you should delete it. Yeah, right. right. It's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. So it's like the aggregation of all of the things that are just on Facebook over the years, right? It's like, I don't have pictures anywhere else. Really, besides that. Well, he says something similar about turning back the clock from an agricultural society, yep. which is, let's say that the knowledge was more or less preserved, right? Even though, actually, you don't even have to assume that. The knowledge is gone. But now, because you have everyone on a farm, you now have like 100 members of the tribe instead of, you know, 85. So which 15 are going to die? Yeah. So the same thing now is that, you know, like Nat left Facebook and now he has no friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he doesn't exist. He made the sacrifice, right? But <laughs> I can't make that sacrifice. <laughs> Me neither. I guess we're the, we're part of the 85. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's the joke Cosette was making when I was debating quitting. She was like, but if you leave Facebook, we won't be in a relationship anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how it works. <laughs> Not FBO if you're not an exactly. Yeah, exactly. If it's not Facebook official, it doesn't count, right? So, well, no, but I mean, that's a really important point because that's what he, you know, says here is really the only benefit that came from agriculture is that you could have more people. Literally everything else sucked. Yep. You had more disease. You had more infant mortality. You were more susceptible to raids and violence. You had like less exercise. You're more monocropped. Like all of this stuff. Can you imagine <gasps> dental health? Oh, uh, that time, oh like, bad. Well, and the crazy thing, too, is like there's this, you know, myth that ancient people like lost their teeth. It's like, no, 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 no. Hunter gatherers yes. have amazing teeth. Farmers. Lost Farmers their lost their teeth. Yeah. Because yeah, if you're eating cereal and stuff. You can actually see it in today's hunter gatherer society. Oh, yeah. They like perfect teeth. Well, that was the thing that blew us away when we went to Africa was like all the like Maasai tribe people, you know, living literally in the Serengeti. Amazing teeth. It's like amazing jaw structure, everything like perfect pearly white teeth. And they're just living on like steak basically like all the time and grains yeah. or not like grains, but like wild, you know, grasses and stuff. So, but yeah, it was like, that was the only benefit is that you could just have more people. And it's like you said, once you have more people, you're not going to be like, all right, who do we, who do we kill off? So we right. can go back to that lifestyle. And the greatest fraud isn't necessarily the agricultural revolution, but rather he doesn't say it's explicitly, but so evolution classifies success as numbers by right. which classification you know cows pigs and chickens have killed it and he actually he talks about that at one point but in terms of quality of life i mean you know they can have the victory right i'd much rather <laughs> be where we are with seven billion than whatever it's like 30 billion chickens and yeah so the fraud is you might succeed evolutionarily but at the individual level well and I, th I think part of the fraud point too is that before reading this i had thought like oh the agricultural revolution was a great thing and then I read this and I'm like, wow, that was fucking terrible. Yeah. Right. I'm glad that those people went through it. Yeah. But if if I was, you know, living in hunter-gatherer society and you gave me those choices, I'd be like, fuck no, I'm not doing that. But that's the thing. I bet everyone would have said that if you gave them the choices. But right. you never get the choices in the moment. That's exactly. like the hard part, right? Well, it's, it's like, it's like, like in Darwin's dangerous idea, exactly. right? Where yep. it's like you never you can't see when one species splits in two. Yep. But looking back, there's that clear point. It's like if in 2006 or 2007, like we knew what Facebook was gonna morph into, like people wouldn't have signed up for Facebook but it's like over exactly. time it's just you've become like everyone's become so attached to these things that it's like 
well, unless they're Nat, you can't, <laughs> you can't leave, right? Nat is superhuman. Nat is, Nat is superhuman, but he doesn't exist anymore unless you go to Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he's around for another year or two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you're right. Like at least it's taught like a big feat of humanity. Like exactly. wow, we domesticated these things. But yeah, we domesticated the, us. Yes. Yeah, so I was gonna get to yeah. that. That's the great line yep. in the book. But yeah. You, the other thing that he does talk about is that it's easy to romanticize hunter-gatherer life, but there were advantages of agricultural. Like, like you had some regularity. Like, yeah. you were more prone to a you know, black swan event, but on the day-to-day, you had more regularity. Yeah, so it was less variance. Yeah. And humans definitely don't like variance. I think that's, like, not a thing that humans are... Like, our bodies like variance, yeah. but our brains do not like variance. Yeah. Although, also, I mean... I think part of that is just like a way we're brought up, right? Like going back to discipline and punish, right? We're brought up in this extremely disciplined, regimented society. Go to school at the same time. Go to school at the same time, follow the clock, you know, work on a factory style, right? I think that if you grew up in an environment where from birth you were used to eating meat every like two or three days and, you know, not eating for a day or two and, you know, eating random stuff, depending on what you can find, like you wouldn't think anything different of it. Yeah. Right? That wouldn't be bad. And like irregularity would just be normal. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think if you switch to more irregularity, I don't know about you, but I find it way more satisfying, right? I could never go back to like, you know, work these exact hours, do this exact thing every day, right? Like that sounds terrible. Damn. I was going to try to hire Nat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I think the, my pitch. You that work the same hours every day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But I think that need for normalcy is mostly like a cultural desensitizer. Like that could be cultural, yeah. not a innate, not like a human human thing. thing. Yeah. There's like voluntary low stakes variance, and then there's involuntary high stakes variance, such as mm. right, like if, yeah. if you fast var- versus there is no food. Yeah, but if you <laughs> yeah. get too hungry during the fast, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I imagine if you were brought up with the you know even if you were used to the high stakes high variance of food, but then someone showed you regular food. Mm, yeah regular yeah. as in like consistent being able to eat three meals a day you'd be like oh that sounds awesome yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i don't have to work for it yeah <laughs> i can just like it, it i can touch my phone and yeah. the arrives. <laughs> i don't have to kill the animal yeah. the gazelle just walks up, the gazelle to, you. Just walks <laughs> up to you and rolls over yeah. Yeah. yeah good point but yeah this was like I don't, I don't know i thought this was one of the most groundbreaking ideas in the book, which I don't, I don't know if he came up with them, but he definitely popularized. No, yeah, he didn't come up with it. Like I brought up uh, the domesticating, like yeast domesticating humans thing. Well, Cause I, I didn't even bring this up. I think last time, but I totally forgot. Yeast are also used for making bread. Right. So it's like not just beer. <laughs> it's like, but we only use yeast for making bread now. We didn't use. Oh, okay. Because there's spontaneous bread. fermentation before. Yeah. Okay. So like it used to be that all bread was fermented. Was sourdough. Yeah. Basically. It was all sourdough. Got it. Exactly. Which is, I love, that's my favorite. What's well, the bread. healthiest so, kind of bread too. Yeah. Right. It's like, if you can eat, uh, what's it called heirloom wheat like sourdough bread that is just like totally fine people who are gluten intolerant can eat that bread and they're oh, really? like totally okay wow yeah. okay i didn't never but do that if you have modern bread yeah like then it you know screws with your system so got it okay interesting i never knew that gluten intolerant people could even eat that yeah it, like some can't obviously but most people who have like an intolerance or sensitivity can eat really good heirloom wheat stuff and be pretty okay so we didn't use yeast but it was still yeast that was doing the fermentation though. I believe that's right. Yeah. Right. Cause that was the same thing with beer. Like beer would never, like we didn't know there were yeast. We didn't know that it, it was, was there, but like, it was happening. It was, yeah. And they would be like, oh, it's the gods who are from like, they wouldn't even call it fermenting, but they'd be like, gods are bubbling the beer. Yeah. Right. And then like it would turn into this alcoholic delicious thing, Amazing. but it was still yeast that was like in the year, yeah. in the air. And then, but my point on that was just like, uh, this whole thing about wheat domesticate us versus we domesticate wheat. Is that based on the numbers? 
that he's talking about? Remember you were saying like 30 billion chickens versus 7 billion humans? Is he making that argument because of there's just so much more wheat? Like wheat is by far the most successful grass. I think it's a rhetorical tool right? along with some dose of realism because he says it was only growing in certain parts of the world at the time. And it was sparse, now, I think, right? It was like, just, yeah. it wasn't yeah. like a pop, like a everywhere kind of yeah. thing. Now it's like now it's every everywhere. corner of yeah. the earth has wheat. Yeah. Right. And I think the other thing he means by domesticate is like, you know, we eat the wheat, sure. But for the whole of the wheat's life, yeah. you have a person cultivating you know, it, yep. tilling, yep. like, taking care of it. Yeah. Giving well, it a perfect it environment. It looks a lot more like the wheat is in charge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're working for it, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And then when it dies, you know, we get the leftovers, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, that's sort of how it goes. But it's also a semantic Right, it's a way to where, put a mirror in front of you, basically, right? Well, like, no, because, like, domesticated, literally, it's like domus means house in ancient uh, Greek. So it's like, the one who lives in the house is us, right? Like, not the wheat. So we're the ones who got put in a house. Oh, Whereas the wheat is still, like, free, doing its thing, you know, growing in the wild. That's and true, actually. Humans have yeah. to, you know, be domesticated, Such right? Subject to everything so that we can take care of, you know, our masters, the wheat. So Wow. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's when you put it that way, it's kind of a compelling image. Uh, all right, we gotta we gotta get a move on. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're still yeah, in the first the fifth of the book. It's <laughs> such a good book. It is such a good book. So the last thing in this first section is just the building pyramids point, which kind of goes through with the rest of the book, and we don't spend a lot of time on it. I just liked it because of the tie into denial of death, right? Where Ernst Becker was basically saying that we're all building our own pyramids in our life, our way to try to transcend our mortality, and uh, Harari brings it up here too that there's this element of. Like the ancient, yeah, so let's read from the book. Like the elite of ancient Egypt, most people in most cultures dedicate their lives to building pyramids. Only the names, shapes, and sizes of these pyramids change from one culture to the other. They may take the form, for example, of a suburban cottage with a swimming pool and an evergreen lawn, or a gleaming penthouse with an enviable view. Few question the myths that cause us to desire the pyramid in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good way of like zooming out past like all the games that we're playing, right, every single right. day, and that cultures have been playing forever. Yeah. And, and like multiple levels of games. Yeah. Because on one level, there is the like, oh, you want the beautiful house in the suburbs with the lawn. Right. And then somebody could be like, well, I don't play that game. Like, I want the penthouse with the view. Yep. Right. It's yep. like, I'm better than you. And it's like, well, it's then the level beyond be that like, is I want a pyramid. <laughs> I want a pyramid. Right. Or the level above that is like, why do you want those things anyway? Right. It's just like this romantic consumerism and that sort of mythology underlying all of it. But again, it's just sort of this shared idea that those things are good and valuable. Right. And I think we're seeing some movement away from that now. Like the nomadic movement is definitely uh, nomadic, like lifestyle businessy. It's like, well, I don't want tons of money and tons of obligations. I want to like rent things and be free to move around and be like lightweight and minimalist, right? The 200 things or whatever, right? That's a pyramid of itself, though. It is. No, no, no. It's, it's its own myth, yeah. right? But it's you've also done minimalism, like, right? I remember you'd written that one I've article. Done like, <laughs> you've done minimalism as a as a. I feel like you were really into it for a while, right? Yes. Yeah, Are you still, still into it? Would you say? Yes. Yeah. Well, like I mean, you're living out of suitcase just, right now, basically, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just got rid of a bunch of shit and I just didn't buy that much more shit. So why do you say it's a form of a pyramid also? Uh, I was going to say the nomad, like any lifestyle change. Oh, instead I of, see. Yeah. yeah. You're not building a house, you're building experiences. Yeah, so it's not like consumerism them, in the sense that you get a thing. It's like yeah. an ideology, basically. You're, you're, or, well, I don't that, know, an experience. Yeah, that you're, it could be an experience. It could be an Instagram, Instagram account. account. A lot of them yeah. are building a medium article. You know, they're waiting <laughs> for the uh, 10 things I learned. Uh, yeah, okay. So it's like a different form. It doesn't have to be a physical object. 
you know, pretty pyramid, penthouse. Pretty much everyone is building a pyramid in yeah. some way. I mean, like, this podcast is a pyramid, yeah, right? absolutely. It's just like, oh, we're going to do such an amazing series of episodes that it will, like, live beyond us. Yeah. Right? And the minimalism yeah. thing, too, is I'm freeing up my mind to do other stuff, right? And I don't know. What do I do? I hang out with you guys and talk about crypto and sapiens. <laughs> <laughs> this is my pyramid. What else would you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is... I want to buy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> More crypto. <laughs> it's so cheap right now. The funny thing is, like, what is the game beyond? on that right it's like there's not really much uh it was almost like a buddhist view if exactly. you get outside of that game of like it's all an illusion yeah kind of it's just suffering yeah. yeah gotta get off the wheel all right i think all right we're time to move on to writing 3500 bc so some sumerians started writing shit down and then the world changed yeah a lot <laughs> <laughs> no but the one thing that i thought was interesting in here was that the first use of it was basically financial accounting mm -hmm. yeah. that they were just recording. It's like, okay, who owes who, what yep. wheat and stuff. <laughs> and apparently they've used these ancient kind of like accounting texts to find other civilizations. Oh, so I saw this just a few days ago in an article that they found these like old Sumerian accounting records that referenced other like cities and stuff, but they had never like found these places. So they used the accounting tools to figure out where these other like digs were. And then they could go and like find them. It's like, oh, sure enough, here they are. Right. And apparently they owed them like 5,000 bushels a week or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which is super cool. Right. Yeah. That was, you know, <laughs> one of the first uses was tracking debts. Yeah. That's fascinating. And it's also really interesting. The number systems, right? The base that I remember there's that section. Oh, oh yeah. It's yeah. Right here. Base These, six and base, base six 10. and base 10. Right. Cause we've talked about that before where, um, you know, we think that, so for humans, right, we have base 10, the speculation is because we have 10 digits, yeah. right? But yeah, the base six thing was really interesting too. Uh, what was the legacy of that? The division of the day into 24 hours? Well, yeah, that's what it inspired. Yeah. But I wonder where it Initially came from. Initially came from. Yeah, yeah, why would you use a base six system? It could be anything. I mean, it could be like a holy number. I mean... Yeah, it's true. It's probably something silly like that, right? So we're, we're looking for a rational like, Right, yeah, which right. there's probably it's not. Really, they just had like six gods. They're like, oh, that's all we need to count up to, right? It really blew my mind, though, when I first realized that base 10 is not like... Universal. Exactly. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't yeah. manifest in nature. It's just some random thing we came up with. Yeah. That, yeah, we've talked about that where it's like numbers yeah. would be like, it would be odd to find an alien species that was like an intelligent yeah. alien species that didn't have numbers. But if they use base 10, that would be weird. Yeah, or yeah. our numerals, yeah. right? That'd be extra weird. Yeah, that blew my mind too. Because <laughs> the Mayans had something crazy, right? Like base 64? Well, like binary. You can do you can do everything in binary. Yeah, you can do everything in binary too. Yeah. So that's, yeah, the 10 is just a convenience kind of thing. It yeah, well, I think it's just yeah. hands, yeah. right? Although like you can do hand counting in binary right. too. You showed right, you yeah. should Oh yeah, we, we... We should make a video of that. Exactly, we have to make a video of it to show people that. Second time now. But yeah, oh, uh, one other thing I wanted to say on that section. Uh, and then I... I think we probably covered most of it but the one thing was that uh so this invention was like dependent on agriculture kind of happening oh, right because yeah. there wouldn't have been debts as in the same way with like a hunter-gatherer civilization yeah and they would have had no need to write anything down. exactly because yeah. the only reason they need to write it down is because they couldn't remember like who owed like if it was just like it was like oh there's only one person in this town who has a debt like you don't need to write that down but if it's like oh he owes him that but he owes him that and he owes him that 
and she owes him that. And it's like, then you just get this web and it's like, all right, nobody, no human can remember all of that. We need to write this down. Well, and I imagine it. it was also like, uh, I don't trust yes. that person's yes. memory. So we need to write it down together. Right. And then we'll store this. Oh, tablet. there could have just been too many. He said, she said, exactly. kind of like situation. Like, oh, you, I only owe you 20 bushels of wheat. And you're like, no, you owe me 50. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, now we can pull out the tablet and check. Exactly. Right before you can do that. And then you can see how that slowly moves to, well, oh, we like put our poems on here and we could you know maybe even put some art on this right and it like would slow although art has more. existed longer with like the drawings and yeah that's the... a good one. art's a bad example but like writing right so writing, a definitely. more complex yes. writing system yeah because the ancient Sumerian was not a complete written language. It was like a partial written language yeah. where it had like just numbers and a few like symbols. Yeah. Right. Whereas I want to say Egyptian hieroglyphics was one of the first complete language. Oh Babylonian I oh, think too. Like Phoenicians are the precursor to our alphabet, right? I believe so, but I think we don't have proof of that. Okay, that's it's a speculation. It's speculation because the Phoenicians wrote on like papyrus scrolls, <gasps> and so we lost all of them. Damn it! Why weren't they thinking about us? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I mean, that's the reason people think the Egyptians and stuff were so like advanced language-wise. But it's just because they like carved stuff on walls, mm. right? The Phoenicians had the written language and everything, but it was all like papers, so we lost all of it. Interesting. And that's why people would say stuff like, "Oh, well, the Phoenicians were just like a money-grabbing like merchant." society they didn't like create any art and culture and stuff it's like well they probably did but yeah. just, you know, we lost all this it's just on the, the medium that they created it on yeah. it was fell overboard yeah. And, yeah imagine some matter of time before one of the like eccentric silicon valley guys starts recording you know i don't know books blog posts anything he sees digitized and ephemeral into in stone, stone. Uh, yeah <laughs> you know yo like, startup well, idea. Uh, <laughs> etching, i don't like, think you make money this, no. <laughs> no no you just need you need one like patron you need like peter thiel or somebody yeah. to like get behind that those like in gold Bach, right the the record idea where it's like how would you create something that any intelligent species could interpret yeah right if you wanted to record an idea how would you encode it in a physical form so that any intelligent species could interpret the meaning of it. It's like, so can you create a record that does not also need a record player? And that's like a tough question. It's like a great mind puzzle. Like this lock and key issue. Probably something with math, right? Yeah. But I don't know, maybe even not that. It's like hard to say. It also depends. I mean, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? You could do anything with imagery, but if the species is doesn't yeah, see yeah see it, right? in the yeah. same way or doesn't see yeah. things yeah. or they, they just see like ultraviolet right yeah. and so or they're like bats with like echolocation or something like, exactly yeah i mean there's other ways to see well quote you know see. see or like know spatially what's around you right right but i mean imagery was my first thought too yeah but then i realized yeah the same thing is just like oh, i can't different. read hieroglyphics so it's no right. use to me right? yeah I can see but you could decipher them yeah if i try given enough time or even something like half an hour it'll figure it out Auditory is the same kind of thing, right? It's like we hear sounds the way we hear them, but like right. that yeah. isn't necessarily true. Range. Yeah, yeah. Good question. I don't know. I wonder if someone's solved that, like someone at NASA or something. I know they've come up with ideas and we've launched stuff into space. And I remember this was like a big controversy when they did it because people like Stephen Hawking were basically saying like, yo, don't do that. Oh, because it was like, like potentially dangerous yeah. too, right? Yeah. 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 It's like if somebody finds this, like we could be really screwed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because if anybody out there can find that and interpret it, like floating it around in space, then they're way more advanced than we are, most likely. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, if there's like a map back to Earth, like that's going to be bad news. Yeah. But I think some people were like, no, this will be great. Ugh. I don't know. The benevolent aliens. That's what benevolent aliens. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like the Neanderthals. Although it might be. No, that's exactly what I was, <laughs> no, exactly was going to say. I was like, it, it's actually, it might be like to survive that long to be around, like where you're picking up debris in space and finding stuff. 
like you probably were savages at some level like you're gonna like survive with the fittest kind of thing yeah. like humans are savage compared to a lot of like most other animals actually well no not anymore no i was gonna say not yeah those stats came up in god was it riddle of the gun which episode did those stats oh, the come violence up in? one the violence one yeah that, i think that was riddle of i think it was riddle of the gun yeah. yeah we're actually much less violent than most other animals mm, to right. each other well, now yeah to each other that's yeah. a good point yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> like think about how quickly we kill a spider though have you guys actually ever seen a factory farm like in uh, person no, no. so you can drive past them uh between san francisco and la oh. and i mean first of all you can smell it from like well before you can see it and i mean i don't even know if these are the biggest ones but it's, they're pretty damn big and they're disgusting they're just oh, disgusting like there's nothing it's all brown it's dust it's yeah it's <laughs> we are terrible <laughs> To other creatures, basically. Yes. No, so that's what I mean, right? Is like, so if an alien species, we encountered an alien species, or let's say, actually, yeah, if we encountered, like, we encounter spiders and, like, instantly kill them and don't think twice about it, right? Like, that's another living being. So an alien could see us the same way. Like, oh, that's just a spider. Let's, like, crush it out or something, right? It's a little interesting because we're visually frightened of them, whereas you see, like, I don't know, like a kitten, you don't kill the kitten. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I wonder, you know, if all of human existence would just rely on the aliens show up and then do we look friendly and cute yes that's a good point do we look yeah. Threatening? yeah although also, do we think do we think kittens and dogs like or, or mammals in general look somewhat co-evolved. cute because we co evolve yeah there's some similarities like eyes are somewhat similar and like whereas like insects are just like that's true totally i don't know like a different tree well and there are some animals that we have a genetic fear of because like even yes, babies are afraid of snakes yeah, yeah. Sharks? Are we afraid of sharks? I doubt it. Oh, I was gonna say aquatic ape theory. Aquatic ape. Getting, oh, uh, <laughs> it's getting, it's getting hurt. <laughs> well, there wouldn't be sharks in like shallow water. Yeah, yeah maybe there would. There'd be some. Great lakes coming. If we did have, <laughs> if we did have an innate fear of sharks, that would help. That would prove the aquatic ape exactly. theory. Funny. <laughs> Unless we coexisted with them. The other thing I find uh, this might be getting too far into speculative, but mm-hmm. imagine a species, uh, you know, interstellar species that are finding a bunch of other planets with people. I wonder how that changes the culture, too. Because I imagine we find one. You're like, oh, let's befriend them. Then you find, like, ten. You disagree with one. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll kill this one. You know? like, <laughs> we'll take this one's planet. The, yeah. the culture plays such a big role in that. Yeah. Or that, like, Where the one that's... Le- yeah, they've, let's say there were... Let's just keep it simple. There were two other ones. And one was, like, we could relate more to. And one was, like... They look, look more like They us. look like giant spiders is the second one, right? Yeah. But they were intelligent. And We'd just of- be like, nope, nope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're getting rid of that spider rid of that planet. One. Yeah. <laughs> Sleep in my web. Like, no, no, no. No, <laughs> no thank you. This is the guest web. Yeah. <laughs> I know your tricks, spider. Yeah. <laughs> the Wi-Fi password is itsy bitsy. <laughs> okay, that's funny right. jokes. So he's got this next section on like there being no justice in history. And the one part of it that I thought was kind of interesting to pull out is these different theories on why there was just like male dominance for pretty much all of human history. And the one thing he points out that I hadn't thought of too much before is that a lot of these other mammalian societies like bonobos and elephants, you know, they're matriarchal, where the matriarch, the eldest female dominates, and the women all live together and cooperate together. And then the men are basically on the outskirts of the society, right? And they pretty much just get like brought in for mating. The males might get to hang out for a bit, but then like once they reach a certain age, they get kicked out and all that stuff. And it's sort of a good question. Like, why didn't that happen with humans? Yeah. Right. And he breaks. Happens with elephants, I think, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Elephants, a lot of monkeys, whales, a lot of these big mammals, big smart mammals do this. And so it's kind of strange that it didn't happen with humans, too, because women are more cooperative than men. Men are more aggressive, right? Like, it's weird that 
we basically went in the opposite direction with men being sort of the main economic cooperators for most of history and being yeah. the dominant ones. And I like I don't have a good explanation for it. I think he breaks down the most popular ones, right? Where it's like, oh, well, men were more like warmongering and, you know, took resources. And he's basically like, well, you know. The one thing I was going to say is that human men are the most feminine males in, well, not the most, but one of the most feminine males in all of all species. Like we have the most child rearing tendencies. Do we? Yeah. Human men. Oh, He's, yeah, I guess compared to other mammals. Yeah, like right? other yeah. An animals would see, like, a, not other animals, but, like, an animal would see a baby of its own species and not feel anything. But, like, I don't know, it's hard to see a baby and not be <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. Right? Like, we do have a little bit of this, like, men are involved in child rearing. Yeah, well, but his counterpoint to that is that there's no reason that other women couldn't help with the child Oh, absolutely. Rearing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like, that, that's one of the arguments is that, like, well, you know, women are really kind of vulnerable. I meant more oh, the yeah. delta between yeah, males and females yeah, yeah. is might be less than, like, with elephants. I don't know for sure. I'm just saying that maybe they're more different, so they couldn't coexist. Because I would say in, in, obviously, we have a patriarchal society. Yeah. But uh, it's less, like, one dominated than the other as elephants. That's a good point. It's not like women yeah. are like on the outskirts and we just bring them in to breed and have our kids and raise our kids. And then we, you know, it's like we cohabitate in the same place. Like it's a delta. smaller power. It's a smaller delta. delta yeah, yeah. Between yeah. the two. That's a good point. Than like some of these monkeys or, or elephants. But yeah, that doesn't explain the whole thing. That just explains why it's not as different as those societies. Yeah. Well, and it also, I guess, like from what we can infer about hunter gatherers, it sounds like the hunting was done as a, you know, oh, yeah. combined group, right? Which is also kind of odd farming is pretty hard work too yeah and farming is hard work physically demanding work so i wonder if that had something to do with it that could have been part of it too but i mean he also points out that most of the roles that were dominated by men were the non-hard working ones like women were at home working on the farm and men were like priests yeah that's a very good point too like hanging out doing that work so it's not like a physical strength thing either uh i don't know i mean because it's it's in like all cultures right right so it's like there has to be something that led to it but like what would it be the first guess that comes to mind but i've already refuted it in my mind but i'll say it out loud <laughs> okay uh is i wonder if any of those roles required the kind of continuity that a pregnancy wouldn't provide because that's the oh. only thing that's consistent mm. amongst all women culture to culture right is that for you know nine months or maybe i don't know whatever period it may not behoove you to give speeches to a thousand people or mm. whatnot right um, but again, the reason I instantly refuted that is you know, like Amy Wong, right? like, clearly you're very high energy, yeah. <laughs> Ali Wong, sorry. Ali Wong. I think honestly, the best explanation might be that his refutations aren't good enough, mm. right? Like I, the one of his that I took the most issue with was the like physical ability one. I think it's like generous. I think he's playing on the safer side, but it could be that there just was a period in human history where men had to do some part of the work and women just couldn't do it entirely on their own, mm -hmm. right? That seems like the most likely one. I, I get his refutation. I think it's compelling too, but that seems like the one where there might be some lenience. I don't know. Do you think there's also some type of preto distribution thing going on here where I could imagine most males, or I don't know if it's most or a significant percentage of males did not pass on their genes. So the ones that did pass on their genes had certain traits and then that like, because you get your Y chromosome from your male side of your family. Oh, I see what you mean. So is there like certain traits that, okay, there's obviously you can't go rewind to the first humans, right? Or like the first two, yeah. you know, whatever. But like you go back and it's like maybe 
it wasn't the way our society is currently set up, but the males over time, the males that were able to reproduce, like aggregated the aggressive traits, the like physically stronger traits. You know what I mean? They just like aggregated the traits that would lead to them dominating society. I guess males in general are more aggressive across species. Yeah, but it could just be a sexual selection thing too. Yeah, that's also where it's like, what's attractive to women versus what's attractive to men? Like maybe. But don't they say, isn't the, the general rule that like, and I could be getting these numbers wrong, but I thought you have two female ancestors for every one male ancestor. Yeah. Basically. Right? It's a two to one ratio, roughly. Right. Why is that? On, on a long enough time scale. Yeah, because most many males do not reproduce, basically. Yeah. But the ones that do impregnate many females, basically. So I wonder if you can apply one of his other frameworks in the book to this, which is the turning back the clock one. Mm. So I wonder if it was like small decisions that led to this. Mm -hmm. So maybe initially it was the man, you know, had a relationship with the neighboring man. So he went and he sold a bushel of wheat. And then... Because he sold the bushel of wheat, it was a man who wrote it down on the ledger. Oh. And it started like something small. I was thinking that, that it could just be like one of those accidents almost yeah. that turned out. But the fact that it happened in almost every society across yeah. the world yeah. independently, right? I, at least I would think it's independent. I don't know. Well, and it's true in like, we you know, what hunter-gatherer societies there are still around today it's too, like that too, right? It's like that as well. So yeah, that's my first thought too, was like, it could have just been an accident and then it just has passed down, but then it seems to have happened independently. How also. involved are males in hunter-gatherer societies and child? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. You know, raising. I think fairly involved because I think that's one of the main distinctions between humans and other yeah. species and like mammals and stuff is the men are much more involved in child rearing, but I wonder, too, if that was like a selected for thing again. Mm -hmm. It's like women only chose to breed with men who, you know, seemed like they were going to stick around and be helpful. And to be fair, it's like one of the things he calls out in the book that's sort of interesting is that, like, you know, we didn't know how sexual reproduction worked. And so there were a lot of tribes yes, where it was like you try to sleep with every man in the tribe, you know, even when you're pregnant you because like you get all of their abilities for your child. Right. And so there could just be like this tribal community element to things right where but that that would actually sound more matriarchal than because it's one female but then many males it actually i mean it could have been matriarchal in hunter-gatherer society and then because it stayed that way with the women helping each other like raise kids and stuff then when it transitioned to agriculture it just like resulted in a power shift right because suddenly private property was involved and so if the women were focused on like what they were doing before in like in matriarchal society, right? The people who are controlling the family are the ones in power, right? Because like, that's sort of you know, like the elephants and the orcas and all of them, right? Yeah. The women are leading the family and allowing the men into mate. But then once you introduce kind of private property to it, now you have like two things to balance, right? The property and the family. There's also a related point to that though. So related to those two yeah. things, I wonder when the institution of marriage came about. So the reason I think that might be related for two reasons. One is like when you have private property, you need to figure out who it gets passed down to. Oh, yeah. Right. So it's like you need to have very sort of clear like lineages, essentially. Oh, yeah. If you think it could be anyone's like. Yeah, it could kid, be anyone. Right? If you have 10 men and one female, right? Then it's like they're definitely going to argue about whose property that goes to. <laughs> It'll be I'm like a so Mori sure. type of thing. I'm not so sure about any culture. Like my mind first went to something cultural, but then it wouldn't necessarily be universal. Oh, right. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, right. but marriage seems to be a not always universal thing, but it's pretty widespread. Monogamy seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. Monogamy. Well, I was going to. So the second point I was going to make related to marriage. Actually, really. actually, no, it's not. Yeah. No, I take that back. It's like it's most not. religions are pretty 
pro like one man having lots of wives yes right well i was gonna say the other thing so that was where i was gonna go the second point is that i think marriage like one man one woman kind of thing seems to actually be a this is gonna sound different than what i'm trying to say but a female-led idea because it would be yeah it's more beneficial to women it's more that's what i was gonna say yeah it's like in it's an outsized benefit to women versus men so that's why i'm wondering where the institution of marriage came from because i don't i don't know the answer to that yeah that's a good question So i'm saying is that maybe that was a way to balance this out or something like i don't know what the reason for that would be yeah but But, i mean i think the biggest takeaway from this is that or it could be a male actually hold on i'm taking it back it might not be a benefit because let's say one man could have like a hundred wives yeah. Right, like a very competent man would have a hundred wives in like in ancient society. Now there is <laughs> very one, busy. <laughs> no, like okay, so yeah. like a king or whatever, right? Would have right. like they have like a lot of wives, right? But if you have one man and one woman, that means more men are now having children. Like otherwise, you would have the one guy giving his genes to a hundred. Like he would be having sex with a hundred women, and that there there could be ninety nine guys on the side not having sex with anybody, which is bad for society, right? Because it, well, then you have like, a lot of men who are dissatisfied, angry, starting. Uh, revolution yes exactly yeah. yeah so i'm saying it might have been beneficial for oh, those 99 men to have the institution of marriage because oh. now they all get a woman too yeah because statistically more men would be like the yes. losers and yep. so they would want marriage to be a thing That's to limit other men's ability to capitalize on that exactly. makes sense so exactly so maybe it's not a female-led idea maybe it's a like i don't want to say a loser man idea, <laughs> but it's like no but it's like that like, it's kind of you can see how that's what it would come from yeah. because the women wouldn't actually care either way it's actually better for them like more, biologically to have the more competent to have the more competent yeah. man even if she doesn't get like full ownership of him like you know in terms of time and stuff right it's like it's bad in terms of like you know love which is like a super modern idea yes. right but it's good in terms of biological health right you want to mate with like the most competent male right but if you're one of the like 99 guys who can't get laid because the sultan has 100 wives right. you're probably you're like, like oh well yeah. god <laughs> said you could only have one wife so now i need a wife yeah. too <laughs> I, I don't know you were about to say this but it's pretty clear there's no consensus on yeah this. No. that's why i love yeah. this section because it's like it's like an interesting question to ask yeah. right and i think it's like a politically charged discussion obviously but but it's fun to talk about <laughs> well, yeah in a historical yeah. context it's a good question right it's like why did that happen? Yeah. Right. It seems a little strange compared to other animals and looking at the history and bringing these other elements. And I don't think we have a good answer. Which is why we get to speculate. Which is why we get to speculate about it. So the high level idea here, I'll, I'll read from Harari. Look, said the average white citizen, blacks have been free for generations, yet there are almost no black professors, lawyers, doctors, or even bank tellers. Isn't that proof that blacks are simply less intelligent and hardworking? Trapped in this vicious cycle, Blacks were not hired for white-collar jobs because they were deemed unintelligent, and the proof of their inferiority was in the paucity of blacks in white-collar jobs. Such vicious cycles can go on for centuries and even millennia, perpetuating an imagined hierarchy that sprang from a chance historical occurrence. Unjust discrimination often gets worse, not better, with time. And that applies very much so in the men and women, but pretty much all areas. And it comes back in a lot with the money sections and stuff later, too. Right. It's like wealth goes to wealth. Education goes to education. The It's part of the problem with some of the trickle down logic is that without any kind of corrective mechanism in place, like trickle down doesn't like trickle very far. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a great idea in theory and like a rising tide lifts all ships a bit, but not equally. Yeah. And it's like, I guess this is related to Prado distribution, right? Where yeah. it's like the rich get richer, the intelligent get 
the best education. Like there's well, like, I think yeah. compounding interest is probably the better yep. like mental model here yeah. is that if you've got a million dollars, then 7% compounding is a lot more for you than if you have a thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. It's exactly. like an economic boom helps you a lot more. Like just everything is better for you if you already have something to start with. And it's kind of like with the power stuff, right? I mean, a lot of countries and places were powerful because they were powerful, right? You see that with like popularity. Now people are popular because they're popular, wealthy because they're wealthy. I mean, that's sort of like a lesson of history, right? Like the Will and Ariel Durant book. I haven't read that. It's a great It's definitely a future episode. Um, But that's one of their main things in it too, is that like, you know, sometimes things just snowball for like no clear reason. And part of the problem with, I think, looking at historical stuff sometimes that we want there to be reasons for things. Right. But sometimes stuff just, you know, like happens for whatever reason and we don't yep. have a good explanation. And then the results become kind of like what he's talking about with like blacks and white collar jobs and then they're not being any and then you're saying that's why they're unintelligent. It's just like a cycle that it's just like, it's almost how do you, you can't really get out of that without a corrective measure yeah. in any way, right? Because it's just, it becomes a cycle. It just becomes a self-perpetuating myth at that point. Well, and that was, uh, what were, what did we... We definitely were talking about something. We were talking about this, yeah, where it's like, that's the main value of... Oh, the systems article. That's right. The uh, Danella Meadows? Yeah, I think that's right. Places um, to intervene in a system. Yeah, leverage points. It's like, one of the best leverage points is if you can find positive reinforcing loop and like break it a little bit because that prevents some of these runaway effects. Yeah. Right. And so if you're trying to change a system, then like, how can you at least slow down these, you know, positive feedback loops? Right. So it's like carbon emission taxes are a good example. Or, uh, I mean, one of the things that she pointed out that was capital gains. Yeah. Capital gains was a good one. But there was one distinction that I thought was really interesting, which is like, it doesn't help as much to take money from the rich and give it to the poor as it does to prevent the rich from making money in the first place. It was something like that. Well, she said if your goal is to reduce inequality, yeah, income inequality, it makes less sense to do redistribution because like the people who don't start off with much, it's not going to compound yeah, very much. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So if you just reduce the amount that somebody at the top will get in the first place, it won't compound as much. So your goal should actually be to reduce the compounding effect as much as possible yeah. if the inequality is the biggest problem that you're viewing. Which actually, when you think about that applied to tax law, I kind of really like the idea of where if you could just like remove income tax and more heavily tax like capital gains, you could probably pull that off in a certain way. like or Especially, especially remove, passive capital gains for sure. Yeah. Well, or like remove income tax for anything below $100,000, right? And then you just increase capital gains tax a little bit and like I don't know, property tax or consumption tax, right? And then that makes it easier for people at like the lower income brackets to like get in the game. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. If you make $40,000 and you have to pay 10,000 of that in taxes, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But if you make $100,000 and you have to pay 30 in taxes, that's much less critical. painful. Yeah. And if you make a million dollars and you have to pay like, 300,000, right? It's, not, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, not that bad. Well, and then also how easy it is at like higher income levels to like start paying less in taxes too. Right. Well, and it's also like, uh, like, if, so we're just, we capped it at a million, but let's say it was like a hundred million, right? Like the compounding effects of that are right. ridiculous, right? Yeah. Like, you make $7 million a year doing nothing. Yeah. Right. If you had a hundred million dollars sitting in an account that was getting you 5%, you get $5 million per year just for you know chilling having, on the beach in thailand right. right so yeah so i think like that's why some countries have gone after passive capital gains so i think i mentioned on that episode like the uk differentiates capital gains that are done through founding a company versus huh. uh just passively getting cap like capital gains so if you invest in a company 
and you're just a passive investor, you pay a 30% capital gains. So if you just invest in the stock market and make some money, right, you have to pay 30%. But if you're a founder and you sell your company, then you only pay 10%. There's two types of capital gains. So it's like a founding capital. So they want to encourage you to start a company, but they don't want to encourage you to like just leave money in the bank and just collect interest and dividends. The US actually does that too. Oh, awesome. but it's not that well known. Oh, it's the it's, election, right? It's exactly. the 409A election. Or yeah, you have to, con- if so, if yeah. you have a, you have to, it has to be a C Corp. So if you're an LLC, but you can convert any time within like five years after founding it, and then you make this stock election. And then when you sell the company, I think like the first $5 million or something, you pay like only, it's much less. It's like significantly less tax than if you would have, than if you don't do the election, right? Because so they distinguish between, you know, a founder of the company selling their stock versus like an investor. Yeah. So you don't pay the same capital gains tax. It's like way less. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And especially if you're trying to like, if, reducing inequality is the goal, then passive, like this idea that they're talking about this vicious cycle, vicious cycle or virtuous cycle idea, right, is for capital gains or not capital gains for interest, compounding interest. If you want to put a wrench into that and slow it down, right, like this is the way to do that. It's increased for those and maybe lower it for other people. Yeah. But then we just move everything into crypto and <laughs> uh, they can't track it. So... <laughs> And move to Singapore, and uh, it's sovereign individual. So. That's a good episode if you want to go listen to, to another episode. Great, That's great episode. One to check out, and to at least for me, I had never read that book before, and it exposed me to all these things Nat just mentioned: moving to Singapore, <laughs> converting things into crypto, and not paying taxes. Not paying taxes. I hope the IRS doesn't listen Actually, to our podcast. The emergency. <laughs> well, that'll maybe like double our listeners. <laughs> yeah. No, the emergency episode. He talked about that too. Uh, oh, Neil yeah. Strauss. He talked about like moving to another country, taking assets offshore. And we swear, IRS, this is not a tax evasion podcast. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Made you evade taxes. <laughs> Made you rich. Yeah. Oh, this is why you name things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So as if you couldn't tell from the title of the episode, this is just part one of our exploration of sapiens. There will hopefully only be two parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You mean people don't want to explore this well, Okay, maybe uh, yeah. 10 parts. We're doing a hardcore history style. <laughs> yeah. Hardcore book, book reading. We're doing an audio book. <laughs> you can find it on Audible. March 28th, 2018. Nat and Neil, joined by a deal. Sit down. Okay. I can't do a good Dan Carlin. No, that was impression. pretty good. That was, that was pretty good. good. Okay. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I thought he was in the room with us. <laughs> Free shout out. Hardcore yeah. history. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Yep. They've got a few more listeners than us. So we're, we're working <laughs> yeah. on it. Just a few. Hey, Dan, we gave you a shout out. You should give us a shout <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, you should give us episode. one too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this got us through the first half of Sapiens. We'll finish the next half next week. In the meantime, you should all pick up the book and read the rest of it. You can get the show notes at majorthinkpodcast.com as usual. And if you click through to get the book from our link there, then we will get a little commission, a little kickback from Amazon, which we always appreciate. And if you get anything else on Amazon after you do that in the next 24 hours, we get a kickback as well. So it's always nice. Uh, Somebody bought a Canon D what is it? D5, I want to say, camera with my affiliate link a month or two ago. It's a $3,200 camera. So that was awesome. Thank so you. I said, go buy another. Yeah. Whoever that was, go buy, another. <laughs> go buy another one. That was great. But yeah, so that's one way to support the show. Uh, you can also support the show by buying stuff from any of our wonderful sponsors. Uh, I think we could start off with 
Kettle and Fire. Sure. So Kettle and Fire, the purveyors of fine bone broth, delicious. Um, delicious bone broth. They got beef, they got chicken, they've got chicken with mushrooms if you go to Whole Foods. I've been super sick this week, so I was drinking a lot of their bone broth, and now I'm better. So I think we can pretty clearly say that bone broth cures disease. We definitely talked about this at Skin of the Game. Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> it's how it works, right? It's like if I drink bone broth every day and now I'm not sick anymore, it's clearly the bone broth. So if you're sick well, or if you... Well, we can agree on this. There's no negative side effects. Exactly. It tastes delicious. It so didn't, you get it didn't make benefits. me sicker. Yeah. And it was yummy and warm and delicious. <laughs> so and the FDA. <laughs> if you are sick and would like to not be sick, or if you're not sick and would never like to be sick, I recommend getting bone broth. Because, you know, I actually, like, I'll be honest, I didn't drink any last week. And then I got sick. So it's probably because I stopped drinking it. So now I know I should just drink it every day. And then I won't get sick again. Seems pretty clear to me. So yes, I guess <laughs> maybe. <laughs> also, if anyone at the FDA is listening, that was all that deal. This is not on their packaging, by the <laughs> way. So. This is just Nat's testimonial. This is not. Yeah, so my testimonial. Kettle of fire is not claiming. Yeah. This. Um, I'm really into Eastern medicine. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, kettleonfire.com slash think. It is delicious bone broth. It is good for you. Highly recommend checking it out. Yep. Next sponsor. Next sponsor. Is a uh, Four Sigmatic. They make great mushroom drinks. Yes. So not elixirs, just elixirs. Elixirs. Coffees. Hot chocolates. Hot chocolates. Yeah. Um, they uh, make they've, it all. So they, they've got a new deal, actually, where you can... Wait, actually, you know what? I'm not going to tell you about this because if you if you sign up for this deal, you can't use our code and then we don't get money. So just pretend I didn't say anything. Nat is on uh, fire with these sponsors. <laughs> Shout outs right Four Sigmatic did not launch a new program. And anyway, you, you can go to foursigmatic.com slash think. Get your 10% off, I believe, discount. Yeah, 10 or 15. Uh, 10 or 15. Like nice you save some money by doing yeah. that. You know, I really have been enjoying lately. Uh, and I think Nat just tried it today. The Certain Adaptogen days. Coffee. Yeah, it's like cinnamony. It's there really is a, in there. a great yeah. flavor to it. Yep. So it's a different kind of mushroom coffee from their regular Think blend. So you can check that out. They've also got their Cordyceps Elixir if you want a pick-me-up a little later in the episode. A deal's holding it up. Uh, we, <laughs> Which you can't see. We don't really have footage, so just believe us. He's very excited about it too. Just like you will be excited when you order your own Cordyceps Mushroom Elixir from foursigmatic.com. Slash thick. Good pre-workout. Good pre-workout. Yeah, good little pick-me-up. No caffeine. No caffeine, so, exactly. So good later in the day, a little bit of extra energy. And then, of course, can't forget Perfect Keto. Perfectketo.com slash think. You get 20% off, I think. We should really look this up before the next episode. We keep forgetting. Oh, and Kettle and Fire has the... the yeah, Kettle and Fire's got well. like scaling, so yeah. up to 33% off. Yeah. Uh, 33% off at Kettle and Fire, 100% off being sick. So <laughs> Don't look down on this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Perfect Keto, all your keto-related needs... <laughs> Really good for if you want to like get into ketosis, sustain ketosis, if you want some keto-friendly protein powder, they got the collagen blend, they got a really good pre-workout with just a little bit of caffeine. So I've had it at 5 p.m. I don't drink coffee and I it doesn't keep me up later. So it's like a nice pre-workout boost. And this stuff is really tasty too. Dissolves well. MCT oil. MCT oil is great. MCT oil powder. Yeah, they got the powder, which is great if you don't want to have disaster pants. And they've got, I think everyone would agree. Everyone who has had MCT oil (laughs) knows it's bad news. But their their non-powder is actually pretty good too. I don't have much gastric distress from that. So, and they just came out with that, and they've got like a fancy name for it, like C8. Yeah, pure C8 MCT oil. So that's eight more C's than I knew I needed in my MCTs, and it's it's good. No gastric distress. Recommend it. So you can check all those out at perfectketo.com/slash/think. Aside from that, you can support the show by giving it a review on iTunes. 
telling your friends about it, Definitely. posting about it on Twitter or Instagram or Pinterest, not Facebook, because you should have deleted your Facebook by now. Nat no longer has a Facebook. So yeah. we're down one Facebook fan on our Made You Think page. Exactly. You know, <laughs> well, when you heard that I deleted it like an hour ago, I assumed that you also went out and deleted it because <laughs> that is the, the level of impact that we have. <laughs> With our decision. That just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. In fact, I'm kind of insulted that you two haven't deleted yours yet. <laughs> I, really, I really thought I was going to start a trend here, but everyone was just sort of like, oh, I was nice. going to say something in the Slack. I was going to say <laughs> that that's going to be the only... Before you actually did it, I was going to say that that's going to be the only one to do it. Because everybody was talking about it, right? I yeah. saw the thread. Yeah, everyone was like, oh, <laughs> maybe. I'm thinking exactly. about it. Exactly. I was about to say, but I didn't want to influence it. I didn't want it, other people to be like, oh, see, I'm going to do it just because Neil said that's going to be the only one. So I just wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> but you were the you were like prime. I was target. the most gung ho about yes. it. Yeah. yeah, which is hey, skin in the game. Nat's got skin in the game. I like it. Well, I feel obligated to do these things first with like you know the small audience that I have for my blog because if like if I can get you know a hundred other people to do it and then they can each yeah. get some, it's like I can. Zuckerberg's have a... gonna come and kill you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's, gonna be like, he's gonna be like, you got everybody to stop using Facebook, and it started with that. That that solar plane thing is actually a, a drone, and get some Hellfire missiles in through our window. <laughs> Then you'd really wish you got your emergency supplies. I know, yeah. <laughs> but at least I'll have all of my. <laughs> so you could blow up with them? Like, oh, no, you it would not bag. save me. Dude, if I get a Hellfire missile in through yeah, my. It's not going to help. <laughs> this episode got dark very quickly. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, one other thing is the email list. Yes. Email list. So yes. go to majorthingpodcast.com and you can register for the email list. We've sent a few, I think three at this point. Two. No, we've definitely said three, man. We've definitely said three. Yeah. A deal's giving us shit because yeah. he wakes up every morning and checks his Hoping email. Hoping for a newsletter. <laughs> when he doesn't get one, he crawls back into bed, just sad and alone. But I left my bed. <laughs> sleeps until the next day when he hopes to get it. He's only been out of bed three days in the last six months. <laughs> but yeah, we've been doing those. We've done two. We're, we're actually all in his bed right now. <laughs> We've done two in 2018, which is better than 2017. It's true. So we're gonna do we're already playing three in 2019. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, we we send out the, this email newsletter occasionally. But when you do get it, it's got some really good content. It's got the bonus content where we talk about things that are not really related to the books, but we talk about other things like productivity, what we're you know some of our work related stuff. Other fun, banter. Uh, other fun, random banter. Playing with Pepper. Playing with Pepper. Yeah. So those are just some cool things uh, for our super fans out there. We announce the books in advance. Yes, that's a big so one. So if we, you want to read the books before we talk about them, that is the best way to find out what's coming up. Yeah, we've gotten a few uh, requests on Twitter yeah. and other places for letting people know about the books. So go subscribe to the email list, uh, and then you'll know what books are coming out. Yeah. So and I think we're probably sending out one soon. Another yeah, newsletter soon. Should be sending. Yeah. Soon, yeah. About every five, six weeks. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, any other random things going on? Uh, at some point, we're going to do some events and. Yeah, we'll do like a live episode at some point. Yep. So, because so, uh, we got that request from a couple people as exactly. well. <laughs> <laughs> Although we maybe don't want to do it at your apartment. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> we need a little bigger venue. Yeah. But yeah, so go to the website, do that, leave us a review on iTunes. Those are super helpful. Keep telling your friends, everybody who's been doing that, you guys are amazing. And uh, see you guys at part oh, two. And hit us up on Twitter. Yes. So I'm at Nat Eliason. I'm at the real Neil S. And Adil is at Adil Majid. M A G M A J M A J. Do I always do that? I always do that. No, because it's 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 a mouth typo. I know it's I know it's spelled in my head.
<laughs> M-A-J. So, A-D-I-L-M-A-J-I-D. Yes. And to follow me, you have to unfollow Nat. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay, he can afford to lose a few. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we will see you all next week. Thank you for joining.